0: my name is thomas malchow i've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years i've worked with hundreds of olympic and professional athletes i can help you become better at golf what's up guys thomas malchow here from train fully welcome to the train fully podcast where we dive deep into the acquisition of expert performance in golf we meet with professionals experts and amateurs from all over the world to help you gain an edge in your game. To learn more about Train Fully and our innovative at-home program, go to trainfully.com. Use promo code GOLF10 for a 10% discount. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Mike Grevlos. Dr. Grevlos is a professor of psychology and a mental performance coach. He's written a book called The Motivation Game, which in my personal opinion is one of the few books out there that can help elite golfers, become even better. All right, so joining us on the show today, Dr. Mike Grevelos, Uh, thank you for joining us, Mike.
1: Hi guys, absolutely, I appreciate the invitation.
0: So your dissertation was on the acquisition of expert performance in golf, which essentially means that you have a PhD in how to become an elite golfer. And you've, (laughs) you've you've written a book called The Motivation Game, which I've read twice and strongly recommend to anybody looking to take their game to the next level. We'll just jump right into it here. If you were speaking with a golfer and they said, you know, Dr. Grevelos, I'd really like to play and compete at the next level, but I'm worried. I just might not be talented enough. What would you say to them?
1: Well, well, um, as you know, I had a couple chapters on that issue in the book. Um, You know, one of the, the foundational beliefs that hold people back is the idea that talent is um, something that we are absolutely born with. That there is something called natural talent, and there may be, but but the kicker is when people believe that that is what creates their potential, and that genes create athletic potential. Um, if we look at the evidence, uh, despite the well argued case that uh, from the Sports Gene book, if some of you have read that one, uh, despite that. Um, there is no scientific evidence that we have to this point that um, that allows us to conclude that our genes will limit us, especially in golf, uh, but even other sports. Some new uh, genetic research just came out recently um, that shows that Olympic athletes, they cannot distinguish them from regular um, people on any particular DNA. and. And so what I, what I have found is that when people have this kind of deep-seated belief that they do not have what it takes, it, it not only stops them from kind of a long-term aspiration, but really what it does is it creates problems in their everyday processes of trying to get better. It, 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 it really affects what standards they hold for themselves. It affects how they attribute their failures and successes. That is probably the biggest issue. And what I would want them to be able to learn is how to think about themselves in a different way that fits the science better. Um, And I I always ask people like, in the end, let's say that you uh, believe that you were limited in what you could achieve. And then when you're 80 years old, you look back and you found out you're wrong. That would be one mistake. The other mistake is you believed that you could actually make it to the highest levels that you wanted to and then at you know later on maybe at 40 50 60 years old you find out that you were wrong. What would be the worst mistake to make? And right. to me that's what it gets down to because we don't know the scientific answer to that question. What can some, what what is somebody's potential? And so what most people will say is I think I would rather go for it because I love it. Uh, I love doing it. I think I would get so much out of the journey, even if I never do make it to that final level that uh, I would be hoping and thought that I would make it to. And I think um, as long as you have some real great, uh, I'll use a term that fits your work, motivational fitness. If you have great motivational fitness throughout your journey, you are going to get so much out of it that it will be very fulfilling no matter how far you go.
0: Well, I think that, One of the reasons why we believe in talent is because we've personally stalled in our progression, but at the same time, we can see players who are better than us, right? Why do we plateau in our improvement? And basically what can we do about
1: that? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're exactly right. Um, The plateaus happen for, for many reasons. Um, Basically in the whole, field of development of um, athletic skills, we have a lack of proper knowledge in terms of what is happening inside the person that impacts the learning process. Now, I believe that the motivation game is designed to help remedy that to a certain extent because we always talk about the, uh, the intangibles. I think the motivational variables are the intangibles. Uh, I have a list of about a hundred motivational variables that I at my disposal to work with when I work with a client to help try to figure out how they all interact and work together to impact what happens on a particular task during practice, what happens during an actual round during each one of the decision points throughout the round. So I think that the motivational variables have been, neglected for so many years that impact the learning process i'll just give you a couple examples so many golfers who are in that place where they're not improving they end up experiencing this uh impatience right impatience like and they start having doubts in that process then they start looking for evidence that they're not at a plateau they start getting very performance oriented during the learning process, during training, during practice. And when you get into a performance mode, what they're trying to do is just see a good shot to try to uh, uh, reduce that fear that they, have, they, they don't have what it takes. But what happens is um, when we don't try to learn something new but we get stuck in that performance mode, trying to look for signs that we are actually okay and pretty good we don't create what's called neuroplasticity. We have to actually create a goal for a new learning task rather than trying to do something that is fairly established in order for a number of different uh, neuromodulators, especially acetylcholine to be released. And so um, when we don't have acetylcholine being released and when we don't have neuroplasticity, when we don't have the brain changing because of the uh, performance mode that people get into, there is no getting better. The brain has to change for you to get better. And that requires attention and the intention to improve during any particular practice task. So and then that I think is a major uh, problem that most people go through.
0: So then to become great at golf, what we really need to do is become great at learning. Yes. How can Absolutely. we, Absolutely,
1: that's number one.
0: So then how do we Address our practice so that we continue to learn new skills rather than trying to hit good shots.
1: First thing you want to do, I think golfers would be very good to do is be able to separate out their plasticity time versus their elasticity time. So, elasticity time is when people are just trying to uh, perform. And then they get better in the practice sessions with there it, it's like a rubber band. And then the next day or next week, they are back to where they were. A plasticity session is when we really want to change something about ourselves. So that's the first motivational goal change that needs to happen. Number two, there are a number of different strategies that uh, golfers can go through during practice that can enhance plasticity as opposed to elasticity. And um, the last chapter in the, in the book, is fairly short, but it gets to some of those kinds of strategies. One of the strategies that most, I think, would be new to a lot of your listeners would be the prediction strategy. A prediction strategy is where you predict what's going to happen on this trial, and it's based on your goal. So if your goal is to improve technique, then your feedback is going to match the Whatever is gonna help you realize if your technique is improved. But then you need to predict, how is that technique gonna happen if you use this strategy? And when you do that prediction, what happens is your brain, you create a gap. This is what we need in motivation. We need a gap between where we're at now and where we wanna go. So when we make this prediction, we create this space between uh, now and the future. And then we, our brain starts to, we do, we start looking for the answer to what happened. How far off or on was I with my prediction? That is an incredible learning process because that's what our brain does anyway. Our brain is actually uh, predicting what happens anyway. So let's make good use of it consciously. So we actually create a learning process by, and then when when you get that feedback, you determine how far on or off you were to the prediction. Then you revise your prediction, revise your strategy, one of the two, and you keep getting closer and closer and closer to bridging that gap between your prediction and what happens in your outcome. So to me, that's a huge and important uh, strategy a lot of people don't use.
0: If, if I were working on say accuracy with one of my irons and I set up um, a window, a window on the on the, the the range that I wanted to hit to. Yeah. Is there an appropriate amount of, say, success failure in my shots that I should be aiming for to um, help enhance that learning process? Because it's not beneficial if I fail every time or if I succeed every time.
1: I would say um, that depends on the, the person and where they're at in their game and their uh, level of hope that they have at the moment. So if their hope in their game is super low, let's increase that success rate. If it's really high, let's lower it. So I think first of all we figure out where somebody's at. Do they need a little boost? Do they not need a ne- necessarily a boost at that time? Overall, I like somewhere between thirty and seventy percent. Over, if, if I were, to have, it's a pretty large range, um, but. Um, the reason I like that is because that means you're actually challenging yourself and you're going you have enough gap there that allows you some room to really learn something. Um, and we, we know that failure, a, a lot of people talk about how f- we need to learn from failure and they're exactly right. Failure is a part of that process that happens in that gap between where we're at now and where we want to be. It's a normal process process that's that's uh that we can't escape from we actually can't escape from failure so therefore let's look at failure as information that um means that we didn't get our prediction correct or we didn't get our goal achieved that's number one and that's totally fine because you're creating a situation where failure is going to happen it is a absolute guarantee that it's going to happen eventually if you make it difficult enough so I, I believe that somewhere between 30 and 70%, but when someone does not meet that goal, it's very important that they respond to it in a way that allows them to maintain their hope. So I always think we need to tell ourselves a hopeful story. It doesn't necessarily have to be a, um, uh, uh, always positive necessarily, but it's something that's hopeful. So in other words, when we fail at something during practice, maybe 70% of the time to 30% of the time, we know the overall purpose of that failure. That failure is to continue to learn and to challenge us so we are plastic rather than elastic. And then I would also say that when we, when we attribute a cause to that failure, that attribution of cause needs to be something that we can control. That is something, no matter if it's success or failure, to attribute the cause of that failure to something that we can actually do something about is so important. And that could be changing your strategy, changing what feedback you look at, um, changing um, what knowledge you have, because a lot of times we don't have the knowledge to even know what we're doing wrong and then how to correct it. So we need to increase our knowledge. Maybe we need to change our motivational strategy, maybe a cognitive strategy, maybe we change something. So there's a lot of things that we can actually control that we can, that we can attribute the failure to. And if we can then shift that, we have ourselves a, a real chance to continue to get better and improve that learning process.
0: And the feedback is really important because I see this all the time when people are trying to learn a new skill or trying to improve upon a skill, but they're really measuring the wrong feedback, for example. Um, and I would like your opinion on this. If somebody were just to work on pure swing speed, would you suggest or recommend that they have a ball there or not a ball there? Like, are they just looking at what, how quickly they can swing the golf club or do they need to worry about ball flight as well?
1: If the goal is only speed, you don't need a ball. Um, because um, that's if your goal was, multiple in in the sense of speed and, uh, contact, which is solid contact, then you need a ball, but now you've added two goals into one. And that can, that's going to happen. Eventually you're going to end up integrating a new goal into that speed goal. But at first, if that's all speed, the, the ball is simply a uh, irrelevant, uh, part of the context.
0: And I know Brian, you, you work a lot with drills without using the ball and this kind of your 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 wheelhouse right here no ball
2: yeah it's it's definitely something that um like the horlander who's been on here we talked about whenever i work with a lot of people instruction wise i work with them with their body motions and how they're moving their body and the biggest thing about that is you know using slow motion drills but then also uh, making sure they're focusing on what they actually need to change and not getting what i call ball centric So what you say there about working on speed, it makes total sense to what you're talking about. And actually, that was kind of the question I was going to get into because you started, you know, talking about different ways of how the mental game really kicks in. And I think you answered it, but how would you suggest to someone, even the better players who maybe they haven't paid attention to the mental game as much as they should? How would you suggest maybe they start into that routine to get where they – they do focus on the right thing. Cause like you said, you don't want to go on with multiple goals. Cause I know with me, whenever I'm working with people with a golf swing, I don't want them to be worrying about everything.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I think it requires some planning time. I mean, a major part of regulating ourselves well toward our goal achievement is being able to spend some time figuring out what is the purpose of what I want to do. What are the purposes of the different things I want to do during practice and during actual rounds. During performance, I think that that planning time is so important because I think we probably all had the experience of well, I can't wait to go out and practice today. You get in the car, you go drive to the course, but you don't have any sense of what you're going to do. You're just looking forward to getting there, and you might have this feeling I want to get better today, and I can't wait to hit balls. But you never actually spend the time to think about what it is you're trying to do, and what what are the strategies for how to get there and how you're going to figure out if you're making progress. So that planning process that, uh, a lot of people will say that's sharpening the saw, which is not very fun, but it definitely reduces your time, uh, in, in, uh, sawing down that tree. I think that's number one. Uh, number two is, I think it's really important. A lot of people give, um, they talk about the mental game as being important and they realize it, but they don't actually know what it is. Um, sometimes what they think is that thinking is the mental game. It's just however you're thinking. But uh, one of the things that I would want to help people understand here with the mental game is that, uh, and why I called the the book, The Motivation Game, because it's really the foundation of the mental game. So I tried to, I had so many titles and I finally came up with that one. but. The idea is that motivation actually is the key to all of these different uh, uh, mental game issues and uh, skills, et cetera. And so, a lot of people what they what they think is if I think something, that'll cause something. But that's not how it is. Mental activity is just mental activity. Motivation actually is a force, and it has a t.Here's a number of forces within our body and our our mind that actually create behavior. They are the the causes of behavior. And so what I would want people to understand is that number one, it isn't just thinking that causes any issues that helps you or hurts you. It might help you if you're thinking properly because it leads to a certain goal that's more high quality and relevant to what you're trying to do. But negative thinking doesn't necessarily cause anything. I could think about a tree And it doesn't mean I'm gonna go pick out an apple because I see the tree, just because I think it. I could think that this putt is really hard. It doesn't mean I'm gonna miss it just because I think the putt is hard. Um, I could think I'm gonna miss the putt and it doesn't mean I'm gonna miss the putt just because I think I'm gonna miss it. What needs to happen is we need to shift from this idea that thoughts cause action to intentions and goals cause action. And then when they move to that place of understanding then they're getting, they're going to get somewhere with their mental game.
0: So this is when you were studying the difference between the, the division one and the division two female golfers, what were the biggest differences you found between the two groups?
1: Well, first of all, the, the number of hours of practice was definitely a major difference. Um, the, the research was originally inspired by Anders Ericsson's work with deliberate practice with musicians and and then Janet Starks with uh, with athletes and some others. But then, so what I started it with that, but I wanted to expand it to understand what's going on with their ability to learn, what strategies do they use, and what kind of motivation and self-regulation stuff happens. So number one is deliberate practice hours were really quite different. The uh, the D1 school, I, um, I worked with, the, the players that I worked with, they were the number one team in the nation at the time. So it was really a, a great team to work with there. And, They they had an average of 5,700 hours of what I called focused practice with the intent to improve, whereas the D2 uh, female golfers had an average of 1,200. That's a major difference at 19 years of age, and um, there was a range that was fairly limited between both, so it wasn't this huge range where you found one of the D1 players who only had the thousand hours of practice and a D2 player that had 5,000. No, that was, the ranges were pretty tight. That was one. The other one is they all, the D1 players did not have conflicts of why they were playing the game. They had the experience of autonomy, this autonomy of freedom of choice and, and being able to go after what they really wanted to do. They didn't have this, this conflict between here's what my parents or coaches want for me, whereas this is what I want to do whereas every single one of the D2 players had conflicts in terms of why they were even playing, and some even questioned why they still were playing competitively. It reminds me of, uh, of Nick Doherty. He was on a podcast uh, a couple of years ago, or last year, and a European tour golfer in the past, and uh, he said that he never felt like any of his accomplishments were his because golf was his dad's game. That was his, He never owned his own game, and that really created – A number of uh, problems along the way even though he had some success he didn't necessarily have the level of fulfillment and enjoyment that a lot of players have so that was another major difference Um, the way that they were able to both have fun and focus at the same time the d1 players were able to do that the d2 players they grinded but they couldn't have fun didn't know how to have that balance of the fun and the focus at the same time a lot of people say you've got to always grind but in reality, I just watched Darren Clark win the Champions Tour event last night, and he was smiling about it all the time. I don't know if you watched watched him. and you know it's easy to smile when you're playing well, but there's there's a lot of times where people are right in the thick of things, and he was absolutely in the thick of things, and he was smiling after about every shot, you know. So that's the kind of thing that the the uh, that I found a major difference between those, and one of those D1 players ended up winning. Uh, in the lpga tour three of them played on the lpga tours one of them won the the highest um uh what's the word i'm looking for um the amount of money that they get the uh, purse the highest person anybody had ever won at some point so here was a person that had this wonderful attitude about the game um and realizing the um the ability to laugh at herself and she, she's the same person who by the way just as a side note the same person who got bored with hitting fairways on a regular basis <laughs> so <every laughs> once in a while she was pretty happy to be in the trees so she could have kind of a more interesting shot cool. and that would be a problem a lot of people would like to have
0: i guess that that's sort of an issue that i know comes up a lot in my game and with a lot of my clients is we can play well when the pressures are low but when the stakes are, are raised, suddenly we start to feel really uncomfortable over the ball. And all we're trying to do at that point is now survive the round. Yeah. Why does that happen? And is there anything we can do to minimize the vulnerability we feel in those situations?
1: Yeah, I think, I think so. Absolutely, Ken. Um, we, when we think about pressure, you know, this, is, this is an idealistic statement, but it's true statement. Pressure comes from the way that we, the, the goals and the motives that we have in the moment and the situation that we're in, in relation to those motives and goals. So if we're in a situation that, that uh, we, we could probably agree that in some situations, one person's going to feel pressure and another person won't. Is that correct?
0: Wouldn't yeah, you absolutely. And that's, that's okay. one of the things that I've noticed is some players, start to crumble under that pressure. And some people start to thrive under that pressure.
1: There's a major difference in the way people, uh, the orientation of a goal in a situation of pressure, there's a major difference. I want to talk a little bit about that. It's the, the difference between being avoidance oriented and approach oriented. And to me, this is this is something I deal with with every golfer I work with, with every athlete I work with is that when the situation is uh, encountered in which there's a, uh, a motive that's at stake, it could be just a win, it could be a trophy, it could be a number of other motives that go way beyond that in relation to their social lives, being able to um, prove to certain people that they can do it or to prove to themselves. So- there's all sorts of motives that can come to play. But um, you know, putting that aside, if a motive gets threatened, if some need gets threatened that relates to what could happen in the next 10 holes, eight holes, one hole, then pressure is gonna be experienced. And two, there's two different kinds of responses to that. One is that people, they might have a thought of, hey, this is on the line now, I need to be able to play well the next five holes. And what, what happens is they get approach oriented. What I mean by approach-oriented is they focus on what they can do and what can they can gain. What is it that that can? What good could come out of the next number of shots and the processes of making those shots? The avoidance-oriented person deals with pressure in a way where they start to try to not lose, not to have that motive act that uh, they're, they're feel they're afraid of being threatened actually come true and happen. In other words, they're loss-oriented whereas the approach-oriented person is gain-oriented. That makes all the difference right there. And we can train ourselves to become much more approach-oriented in all these situations where we have been trying to avoid a poor shot or avoid choking or avoid a loss by by changing, first of all, understanding what motives are kind of high up the ladder. You'd know what I'm talking about there. What I mean is those motives or needs that aren't, cannot be achieved in the moment, but that somehow or another, this goal is going to help uh, fulfill. And so we need to figure out what those motives are. Um, There's a number of times I've worked with uh, athletes where I helped them, um, one comes to mind, a wrestler. A wrestler was not able to um, make it to the national championships the first three years of his college career. And he would get this pressure at the end and he would fail to qualify toward the end of the season. And so we had a, a simple conversation where I asked him about his future life. And I asked him about uh, what leads, what, what's gonna lead to happiness in his life and what's, uh, what's gonna get in the way of his happiness. And when he looked at his actual values, he realized that making it to the national championship actually is not a prerequisite to future fulfillment future happiness. And when we can bring that mentality into the moment, which we can, we can bring the future into the present and bring that hypothetical and learn to, to bring that into our attitude. That is when we say we've got perspective. That's what happened to Ben Crenshaw and the masters when he won it after his coach of many years and his dear friend, uh, um, Harvey Penick had died. This is what happens to a lot of people when they have a breakout win is, is they've found this perspective because they realize there's the, the threat is no longer there. If we can get rid of the threat, we get rid of the pressure. And so, but if you still have the uh, pressure because you still want this really bad because it's that important to you, you have to just learn how to flip it to the approach orientation and you can, you can learn to become very good under pressure. Is that?
2: Go ahead, Brian. Are there some key ways that you've, you've, you talk about going into that approach way because I know, like, especially it, it happens even with the better players, they get to two or three under in the first front nine, and all of a sudden they're like, Oh, I, I've never been here, or I want to be better than this. And then that fear factor <laughs> kicks in, and they're just trying to hold on to it. And actually, what happens is they descend, um, and then they end up not having the best round that they could have had. Um, oh, so that approach mindset. Is there some ways of practicing that?
1: Yeah, um, I, I believe so. I, in, in, in chapter eight, you would have read about the uh, peak performance process, those three steps of picking your shot and priming your shot, performing your shot, and then the two recovering or the responding to the shot and then recovering, rec- recreating. The, that's a full round practice or a focus strategy. And what that's designed to do is get you approach oriented throughout the whole round. And what you do when you practice, it's very different than typical mental habits that golfers have. It's a very different way of thinking. It's instead of playing one shot at a time, they learn to play one goal at a time because there's a different goal with every different phase of the shot selection process and after it. So it's one shot is way too vague in my mind. It's too too general, too much can go wrong in the process of planning for the shot and after the shot and between shots. And so I developed a strategy based on scientific ideas about what is the best way to achieve goals. And when you practice that regularly, not only when you're playing around but also when you're practicing. So one of the things we talked about earlier was um, creating a, a learning process in practice, plasticity versus elasticity. Well, if you create a performance goal during practice, that is about improving your mental habits that you will actually implement during a uh, round that actually is plasticity. So there is a, a, an exception to this what I talked about earlier where you can learn to continue to get better at um, going through a process that's approach oriented, I even tell uh, athletes a number of times to start speaking in approach oriented ways in their everyday lives, so that instead of saying something as simple as "don't forget," why don't you say um, "make sure you remember"? See, there's a there's a slight difference there in the language, but it makes a big difference. A lot of parents will say, um, you know, "don't uh, you know." You, you, if, you, if you don't clean your room, you can't go out with your friends tonight. Well, why don't you change that to, if you clean your room, you gotta go out with your friends tonight. It's, it's a simple change that is really difficult to do because it's a habit that people have gotten into. But if you train yourself over time and then make sure that you actually implement it in the context in which it, you want it to occur, you absolutely can change these habits. There are differences in people where some people are much more avoidance oriented by personality, whereas other people are more approach oriented by personality. Phil Mickelson is an approach oriented golfer. That's what he is. He's a Phil the thrill, right? He loves, he (laughs) loves the game. He loves to promote what could happen versus this defensive idea that I got to be cautious and inhibitory. And of course it gets him in trouble sometimes because he doesn't necessarily always look at um, the risk reward in the same way as other people do. But to be honest, Brian, I really know through experience that players can change that. And it really is just a simply of changing it on a regular basis so that um, you, here's another piece. I'll just say one more thing about it. Here's a piece that helps people commit to it. When they understand why it hurts their performance, they start to commit to it. And here's why it hurts. When you have this avoidance oriented goal, of not hitting it into a penalty area, of not topping it, of not uh, uh, following through with a lead for the tournament, whatever it is, what happens is you start paying attention to things that aren't relevant to the actual task. And, and with every player I work with, we talk about and we figure out exactly what are they paying attention to because of that goal. A lot of times what you'll see when somebody's really avoidance oriented, they start to uh, pick up everything around the ball because it's a distraction now and it could cause them to have the avoidance thing happen. And so they start getting really vigilant about what could get in their way of being successful as opposed to when they usually just don't even notice that kind of stuff. And they start noticing what could go wrong and they start feeling uncomfortable because they notice internally, oh, I just started noticing that my uh, hand is a little tight here and I don't feel in my posture quite as well all of a sudden, why do we get uncomfortable? Because we're in avoidance goal orientation. We start noticing things that could actually make the bad thing happen. That is why that happens. And the second reason it happens is because if you're if you're at the end of a round, you got three or four holes left, you're having the best round of your life, and now you start thinking about this wonderful uh, reward you're going to experience, which is your best round. What often happens to people is they start um, they start trying to protect that thing they already have in their mind. So in other words, if you start thinking I've, I've got this or I've got this round, you know it's, it's gonna be my best, um, the brain can start, the subcortical parts of the brain can start to uh, treat that as if the goal's already been met. It's a strange thing, consciously we know it doesn't, but the brain almost starts to treat it as if it already has been done. Now, if you've already got it in the bag, And now you still have work to do. All you can do is lose. Right. Because you've already got it made. Now all you can do is lose it. And that's why people's pressure and avoidance orientation causes them to all of a sudden degrade their performance there toward the end.
0: Well, you've said that in your 20 years of experience, you don't recall working with any golfer who lacked an ability to focus. Instead, you say golfers lack the knowledge of what to focus on. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, there are PGA Tour players who have been diagnosed with uh, attention deficit disorder. That's the key. And here they are playing at the highest level with a, with a mental game that is sufficient to play at that level. Not necessarily the best, but, uh, but it, doesn't, it, it doesn't mean, even with someone who's been diagnosed with an attention deficit disorder, that they can't focus on every shot. It, and so even at that level, I have not met anyone who can't focus when, of, when something is of interest to them. And even with, uh, I, I, I use the example of attention deficit because that's a, an extreme example of someone who has difficulty maintaining attention on things in the face of distractions. But even those with attention deficit disorder diagnoses absolutely can maintain attention for a pretty long period of time if it is of sufficient interest. And so if you have a plan, a a motivational and um, focused plan for a round, you know every phase of the process and you know what to pay attention to. And um, you're able to regulate the emotions that come and go during a round, which is also a motivational process. There's no reason why you can't be fully focused. Now, I do think that there could be some uh, additional strategies that can happen that can enhance that concentration, but um, uh, by, by doing distraction training, for instance, by putting distractions into your life when you're practicing and attempting to do the focus, and so you can get better and better and better at that. I do believe that concentration can be honed, but Focus, just making sure your attention's on the right thing at the right time. I don't see anybody having necessarily a deficit in my experience with being able to do that.
0: What should we focus on between shots like as we're walking to the ball?
1: Great question. So one of the things that uh, I'm I'm sure, Brian, you teach this and I I don't hear enough about it. Um, I think caddies uh, are a great resource for this. But learning the conditions, um, you know, understanding what the effect of various conditions are with your particular tendencies. So, in other words, when we're the first thing that we have to do is pick a shot, right? We gotta pick a shot. That's the first thing we do in a shot process. So in that process, we've got to look at the lie. But we don't just look at the lie, we observe the lie and evaluate the lie in relation to um, what is possible out of that lie. And we also look at the wind and all the other conditions that we look at. Some, a lot of times golfers forget one or two of those that can make a be a problem, right? So we go through that process. And I believe, first of all, we try to think about what we can actually, how can that condition help our shot versus hurt us? I always think we start with the, uh, the possible, What what's ideal in this situation. So each time when you look at the lie, you look at the lie. That's all you're doing. Your goal is to evaluate that lie. And that's a particular time. And that's your goal. One goal at a time. Look at the lie. Switch now. Now you're going to go to, let's say, the distance. Uh, now you're looking at the distance. And you're, you're going to look at the distance to the pin. But you're also going to look at distance to different locations, depending on where the pin is, etc. cetera. That's another goal period in that process of shot. Then you're going to look at wind. You're going to look at penalty area. So you're, and I, I like it when people have a certain sequence that they go through, that is, they do that most of the time. So they don't forget one of them. It becomes habitual and um, becomes an automatic process so that their mind, their motivation and mind becomes more automatic and habitual, but okay. So they go through that process and then they've got to choose a shot, but before they choose that club and the trajectory and the shape of the shot, they've got to know where the penalty areas are too. A lot of people are afraid if I look at a penalty area, it's gonna cause me to hit in that penalty area. Again, thoughts don't cause actions, goals do. So what I say is look at the penalty areas, get it over with and be sure you look right at them with the realizing that this is a very helpful process to look at these penalty areas and the trouble areas around the green, if it's an approach shot, for instance. So look at those trouble areas, see where you would have a hard time Holding the next shot if you hit in that area. That's how I look at it. It's because I always think that holding the shot is your first ideal goal. You're not always gonna stick to that. I know that. I understand core strategy and so on. A lot of times we're not going after the holding it. We're not going after the pin. To start the process of planning it, I really like that idea because it allows you to see what's possible. And a lot of times, golfers don't see what's possible. They don't understand the kind of creative things that they can do on the course. And and so you start with that. And but by but but then you look at those. You kind of look at those penalty areas, and you see well, if that's if the risk is too high, that if it, given my current skills and my current situation, what are the odds that I, that I could possibly hit in that trouble area? Well, if it's too high and everybody's going to have a different number for what's too high or a different feeling, but if it's too high, then you've got to change your target. And you then the second thing is you revise your goal. It's, you don't have to always have the ideal goal. So you revise it. You revise it based on your understanding of your dispersions not on the range only, but in that particular situation with that lie, with that wind, from that angle and all these different things, you, you ha- you, we want to know our tendencies in very specific context. And I don't think a lot of golfers know that. But when you know that, you can make amazing decisions based on your prediction of what's going to happen with this shot. A high level of probability that you'll, you'll, you'll hit it within this kind of range or dispersion. And so then you can determine what target you're going to hit. So I think when you do that, you, 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 you're able to figure out the, the, the trajectory, the distance, whether you want it to spin, where you want it to roll out there, where you want it to hit and roll out to. Um, and you'll have so much more confidence in your decision with that. The other thing that allows someone to have a lot more confidence is that you did consider the penalty and the trouble areas. You don't have to keep thinking about that now. You've done your due diligence. You've taken care of it. So now you go behind the ball, you prime the shot. All you're trying to do now is get your mind to to be completely committed to that particular shot that you just planned and decided upon. And once you prime it, then you walk into the shot and you can do whatever pre-shot routine exactly you want to go about doing. But the performance of the shot is really just making sure that nothing else interferes with that prime, with that particular, um, shot and that, and a lot of people use imagery to, to be able to, to make sure that that goal of that particular shot, shape and ball flight sticks when they swing the golf club. What's your view on,
0: what's your view on picking, uh, like intermediary targets?
1: Um, I think people are different. Some people, um, when they look out to the target far away, they, uh, that's an interference for them. And it comes back and, it, and it's like some people when they putt, they, they can't get their mind off the sight line of the putter. And so they may not want a sight line on their putter or they can just try to train themselves not to let that bother them. But some people just change putters. So it's the same thing here. If your target, uh, if, you're, if you keep looking out at the far they might still bring in the penalty areas that they had been concerned about earlier in the process. And so therefore, an intermediate target makes complete sense for them. Just use the intermediate target and you never have to look again at, your, at where you're trying. Because really, you're already set up to it. There's no reason for it. Now, other people, they like to have that far target because it brings in more of the reality of where that ball, they want that ball to end up. And, but they don't have that tendency to think about the penalty areas. So for them, looking at it may be absolutely what's best for them. And I think people need to kind of do a little trial and error with that. Is there,
2: is there a way of doing where you do both? So like your mind, so like, um, you know, like a longer shot, maybe you're looking far out and not at something intermediary in the middle versus if you're on the putting green or short shots you're looking more at like a spot kind of in between is that a good idea or is that something maybe you need to pick one
1: i think that golf is a context specific game (laughs) and and even the mind is context specific so that certain contexts can actually trigger certain goals that you've had in the past in those similar contexts that you need to be able to take charge of and let, instead of letting the context rule what happens to your mind. And so I really believe that you might have a different um, target and intermediate versus long-term or uh, far away or whatever for different types of shots. I do believe that there's no problem with that whatsoever. Um, it's not like we have to... Um, I, I realize there's a lot, uh, there's a, there's a common view that we have to have the routine exactly the same all the time. I don't believe that. I think we have plenty of evidence of people who don't have exactly the same. What really matters is that your goal is relevant at the time. If you, if the way that you get to that is a little different than another type of shot, as long as the goal is relevant to this shot, that's what matters the most. That's what's going to bring that motor pattern to be the most consistent when we have a consistent goal that's relevant to the task. So, I am very open to people having um, pre shot routines that are slightly different as long as the goals are relevant. And, you know, even, I know that Tiger Woods have had a pre shot routine that you can clock to the, to the second, right? But not everybody does who's won. Uh, You can look on, you can watch the PGA tour. And uh, I, I watched uh, a PGA tour player win a tournament on the last hole uh, within the last month, whose pre-shot routine changed on the last putt and made the putt to win. So did the goal get to the right spot at the time he needed it? Probably. I mean, he made the putt and uh, most likely.
0: What's the difference between relevant and irrelevant goals?
1: Um a relevant goal is something that relates to the 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 higher level goal that you have so if you're trying to score if that's your goal for the round that's a over that's a higher rung on the ladder goal it's a kind of a mode i want to score today all right really really well so then you hit it into the trees and you you have a probability about 10 percent to get out of those trees in a way that's going to work for you well if you decide hey this will be fun to see if I can make this shot. <laughs> I've been always wanting this shot. I can't wait to work on my, my draw or my big old time, sli- my hook or my slice. That's an irrelevant goal to scoring because you're just trying to have fun now. But if your goal is to enjoy the round, then that's not an irrelevant goal. It's a relevant goal because it fits what you're trying to do with the game that day. So most people want to score. You know, but some people want to just go enjoy it. So they use hickory clubs and they go do all sorts of things like that. Great, that's enjoyment is, is, is uh, hopefully an experience that most people have in the game, if not everybody, right? But we've got to make sure that it relates to what you're really trying to achieve. So another thing would be anytime you have an avoidance goal during the execution of a swing, that's irrelevant. For instance, um, when you're if you, if you reach for a glass of water, and you just want to drink it, that's one goal. You reach for it, and you're going to have a movement pattern that fits the goal. But if you want to reach for that glass of water and not spill it, all of a sudden, your movement changes. It gets very slow. It gets more guarded. You start paying attention to the water instead of just nothing, you know, because you know where to go with your mouth. So now you're paying attention to different things. And and so now you've shifted goals, which which um, in that case of not spilling it may be very relevant, but let's say that you're hitting a 70 yard wedge shot and you, you're you indecisive on the ball flight. Part of you wants to hit a low shot. So you pick out a, uh, let's say a, a pitching wedge, even the pins in the back, let's say and you want a little pitch shot uh, with a pitching wedge and let it roll out. Well, then you have uh, you, but you still think maybe it'd be better to hit a higher shot into that because there's a, you know, depending on the undulation of the green. So now you've got two goals at the same time and you haven't decided and committed to one. That's an irrelevant, one of those is an irrelevant goal. And it's probably the one that's, you're trying to hit a little higher. So all of a sudden now that movement pattern is gonna have two goals uh, as the source of that movement pattern. It's not gonna be as efficient and, and as accurate likely as the one where you just have committed to the one. There's so many irrelevant goals. There's so like uh, you could have a uh, a high school player with a college college coach watching in terms of recruiting process, and now they're trying to show the coach that they can hit the ball very far because distance is so important today. So therefore, I'm going to show this coach how far I can hit it. That's an irrelevant goal to scoring in that case. Or maybe they're trying not to um, disappoint a coach or disappoint a parent during the actual round of golf, none of those things are relevant to the game. The task requires a a limited number of goals that are going to really make sense. And those are the most relevant. So.
0: Anything, is this all making sense to you, Brian? I know this is like, uh, I I could go on with this forever. I love this, this uh, topic.
2: I, I, yeah, the, the thing I'm getting away from uh, really getting out of this and what I loved about the book too, was the concept of, really take every shot as its own circumstance to really be successful at this and not as a whole. And, and that's what I'm getting from this conversation too, is, is you're saying, and it's funny cause you're, you're going to go against a lot of golf instructors with the fact of your routine doesn't have to be the same. Um, yep. But, but yep. if you're, I mean, looking at it mentally, I love the concept because it's looking at it from a, what is this goal of this particular opportunity versus the whole grand
1: scheme and Thank it, you. i appreciate that yeah uh the 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 uh routine doesn't cause the the uh, swing the goal does while you're swinging it and the right prior to the swing that's what causes the motion the uh you know the, the routine has a purpose and have you have either of you ever stepped up to a shot without a routine and hit it just flush oh, oh yeah Okay, so So, I think everybody who's decent (laughs) has done that. Anyone who hasn't, isn't really a decent golfer has done that. That shows you right there that the routine doesn't cause the flush shot. It's just a part that can help a lot of people get into the right mode uh, mentally to hit the shot. But if you're already in the right mode, motivationally, mentally, and in terms of focus, you don't need it. It's not necessary. It just is a nice way to help you get into it. And so, I mean, when when I, when I work with golfers, I encourage a routine. I absolutely do. But I don't want them thinking, oh no, if you're off the routine, all of a sudden your shot's gonna be bad. All of a sudden that creates doubt. And that's what I don't want to have a golfer have and think that, like, for instance, I'm gonna say one more thing, I don't know how much time we have, but this is probably gonna really irk some people. I don't know if it will or not, but you <laughs> might wonder about it. I don't believe confidence is always necessary to, to play great golf. Because um, I think what's happened sometimes is people get this idea that you gotta feel confident to play great and then they don't feel confident and then they have this secondary doubt that occurs creating uh, avoidance goals and monitoring of their body and comfort levels and positions and everything else that creates the problem itself, not the lack of confidence in the first place. Um, Confidence is, low confidence is only a problem if it distracts you and creates an avoidance goal. But we've all probably been by ourselves at a time and done something that we have no idea if we can do it or not, but we're, we just see what happens. And we allow ourselves that process of just seeing what happens. And we, we realize that, wow, I can still do it even though I had no idea I could do this. And, and I, I, I think we could point to a number of players who have gone into a round Without any confidence from that warm up, not knowing where the ball is going to go, and won a tournament.
0: And vice but I think versa.
1: We need to be careful with that confidence piece, and um, and look at it from a whole different light.
0: I've had situations where I've had a great warm up, feel great, and then right away, boom, performance is terrible once the once the game starts.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: All right, well, thank you so much for coming on and and sharing your wisdom with us. Uh, Again, Dr. Mike Grevlos, his book, The Motivation Game, we'll be providing a a link to that on social media. Um, Thank you again, Mike, for coming on and sharing all of this with us.
1: Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you so much. Good talking to both of you.